This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Eric Newsom is the Muddy Waters or Gary Clark Jr. of podcasting, and he's written the just-published Make Noise, a creator's guide to podcasting and great audio storytelling. Eric Newsom, Eric is the leading go-to expert in audio, podcasting, radio, and spoken word entertainment. He's developed several iconic programs and been on the front lines of innovation in the evolving podcast ecosystem. He led NPR's initial podcasting efforts in 2005 and remained its leading creative and strategic force for a decade. He bought programs like Fresh Air with Terry Gross, Snap Judgment, and one of my favorites, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, into the podcasting ecosystem and helped them become iconic hits. As a creator, he developed some of NPR's most successful podcasts, including the TED Radio Hour and Invisibilia. He continued his track record of success during his tenure as Audible's leader for short-form content and podcasting, creating such recognized podcasts as Sincerely... X, another co-production with Ted, The Butterfly Effect with John Ronson, and Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. Eric is also the co-founder of the podcast production and consulting company Magnificent Noise, and he's with me today on The Literary Life. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much for having me. You know, before we get into all this podcasting stuff, what really intrigued me about Make Noise was learning a little bit about you. Mm-hmm. And knowing that early on you were a radio guy. I was. Mistaken. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I grew up loving radio. To me, radio was the coolest thing I had ever um, uh, experienced. It was exciting and visceral and things happened. And you really got to understand what was going on in the world by listening to the radio. And I remember um, early memories of getting in trouble with my parents because they would catch me at night in my room with a flashlight writing down Casey Kasem's top 40 because I'm like, somebody has to remember this. This is really important stuff. And so I write it down every week and stay up late. And I would, um, uh, since I was a child, would put on talk radio at night and listen to it as I kind of drifted off and fell asleep at night. Uh, everything from you know politics to the craziness of Art Bell and so on and so forth. And um, I've always been really excited by that. And kind of came into radio kind of by accident. I was in college radio uh, doing, you know, the two-hour-a-week music show and uh, was asked one day if I would come over and watch, basically watch open reel tapes go over the uh, um, Thanksgiving holiday weekend. And I said I would do that. And uh, that started my – I didn't mess it up. And then I got to – was asked to come back and do it again. And that was basically how I started my radio career as a professional. And then you 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 went to a radio station mm-hmm. and worked with an NPR station, mm-hmm. I believe, and that yeah. was in the Midwest somewhere. Yeah, at WKSU in Kent, Ohio. In Kent, Ohio. Yeah, and um, 
uh, bounced around a number of other stations for several years, ran uh, that, came back and ran that station uh, later on. And you tell the great story in the in the book about how you were there as a teenager. I was literally guy. a teenager when I walked in the door. And I was 19. You, and yeah. then you hired, you came back and you were working with people older than you that knew you yeah. when you were a teenager. Yeah. And, and, and it was kind of a very strange situation to the first time I was ever in charge of managing anyone was when I was the program director of that station, which means I was in charge of all the on-air staff and the sound and all the programming on the station. And I was, I think, 30 years old at the time, 30, 31, right in that area. And so 11 years after I walked in the door to to watch those open reel tapes, I was basically in charge of all the people who taught me everything I knew. And, and, you, know, and you had a great lesson. One of my favorite lines in the <laughs> entire book is the lesson that came from that. Yeah. And I think it, it applies to a lot of us who are in the arts, but not creators mm -hmm. and what you see even though you are a creator as well but you said in my mind creators serve audiences and i serve creators that's true i mean i i figured out pretty early on that if i did but well, people always ask me why i don't host the podcasts that i create and the answer for that to me is is very clear that if i had a podcast maybe i could do one or two podcasts right and that would take all my time and attention to do those one or two really well but if i'm kind of helping people others do it um i get to do all kinds of things like in any given day i'm working on three or four different projects and i'm helping people solve problems and it's exciting and fun and then i send them off energized to go uh, you know, do something. I when I first landed here today in Miami, I was walking around the pool at my hotel, helping two producers figure out how to solve a problem for uh, an episode that's based in Bangkok, and we have to kind of figure out how to do something in Bangkok, and we're trying. And that's really fun. And then I get to go and and it's something about dinosaurs, and then I get to go on and do something else. It's just really, really a fun way to be involved in many things. Um, and it's the producer's yeah. eye, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so I always look at like your job is to be great, and my job is to make sure you're great, and to give you what you need to be great, and the inspiration, and the uh, idea, and the ideas, and to create the framework for you, and um, uh, I, I, and that is much more of a thrill to me than whatever fame I would get by hosting a podcast. So when did you make the leap? from doing that in this radio station in Kent, Ohio, mm -hmm. to doing it on a more national scale for NPR and that sort yeah. of thing. So, so around 2004, I left the radio station I was working at and went to work at NPR. I'd been recruited to go work there. And so I was working, managing basically the relationships between NPR and the, the shows that carried NPR's name but weren't produced at NPR, like Fresh Air with Terry Gross or Car Talk, those type of things that were produced externally but, but were distributed under the NPR brand name. And I basically managed those relationships. And uh, in 2005, podcasting really started to kind of emerge as a, as a real thing. There, you know, Apple was starting to get behind it. There was lots of people were getting into that space, and a lot of the shows I was working with were starting to get interested in this as a, a way to distribute their shows, and it made perfect sense for them to do it. They were on radio, but yeah. then they could create a podcast right. which would live forever. In a sense. Right. Well, you know, 
there was a time where radio was so ephemeral that if you heard you missed something on the radio, you missed it. Right. It was gone. And if Terry Gross is on at six o'clock and had an author with someone you were interested in, if you were in front of the radio at six o'clock, you didn't get to hear that. You couldn't quite TiVo it. Right, 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 <laughs> right, right. Though people were starting to play around with versions of that at that time. Um, uh, the basically for for ninety nine point nine percent of the public, it was ephemeral, and if you missed it, you might be able to order a cassette of it. They could sell cassette copies of it, right? And so uh, the initial attraction of podcasting was it would remove remove time as being a consideration that you could subscribe to it, much like you remember selling it as subscribing it like a newspaper, and you could. Um, listen to it on your timeline rather than when the broadcast schedule was. And to me, that was very a very exciting thing. And it also removed geography too as being a consideration because if I like, like at the time NPR had a show called Selected Shorts, which is people reading short stories on the radio. I know. I, I, that was from the, um, Isaiah Sheffer was involved with that. That's right. He was also from many years. Yeah. So, so that was a show, for example, that always struggled on the radio because there were people in every town who would love to listen to short stories run on the radio, but they were there weren't that that many of them. And and radio, because of the the cost and infrastructure of putting things out on the radio, kind of commands you have to have some level of audience in order to make that makes sense. And so by removing geography, you're removing you don't care how many people in Miami or Columbus, Ohio are interested in that all together, there's a lot of interest in it and you can f- support that programming that way. And I remember for a selected shorts, the show we're talking about, when I first said you should be a podcast, they thought it was nuts. That was Symphony Space. Symphony Space was where right. it was hosted, right? I think right. they still do some very- They still right, do yeah. it. And so geography and, and time were the two things that initially was attractive about podcasting. And I was literally in the cafeteria lunch line uh, at NPR one day, and the guy who was the COO of the company, went on to become the CEO, was standing behind me in the lunch line and uh, kind of making awkward lunch line conversation. And he's like, just basically asked, so what's new that you find interesting? And I said, well, there's a thing called podcasting. And I'm really excited because it solves some of these problems that we have and listeners have, and it kind of makes that not a problem anymore. And he's like, that's intriguing. Why don't you put some time on my schedule and come talk to me about podcasting? And I thought he was just being polite, so I didn't do it for a while. Eventually I did, and he wanted us to come by. And so different memories. Uh, it's been several years. Uh, all of us remember it slightly different. I thought it was me and two others. Uh, everybody else thinks it was just three of us in the room. And I do remember us walking through... Uh, Ken through this process of how a podcast work. And when he picked up the iPod and pressed play and heard the show, this, this look came on his face that he got it. Like he got it. And in and, and a way that other people... And what show was that? Do you remember? Oh, I can't, what remember, it was. What it was. can't remember what it was. can't remember what it was. It was, it was not an NPR show because we, we, NPR didn't have podcasts. It was just another, podcast, was right? just another podcast. And so we thought that was going to be the end of it and kind of went on with our lives. And then a couple weeks later... 
I don't remember how how many weeks it was, but it wasn't long. Um, I was in my office one day. I look up and Ken's standing in the door of my office. And without saying anything else to me, he's like, you have 12 weeks and they're assembling a team upstairs. And I want NPR podcasts by the end of August. Wow. And um, like, but I have other things to do. And he's like, not anymore. You don't. And he walked away. That is fantastic. And that day we started and, and, uh, uh, we got an extra 30 days for some reason. Can't remember why, but we ended up coming out with 32 podcasts at the end of that period. And that was the start. And the funny thing was that was 2005. And a lot of people in the podcast community said, oh, NPR is finally doing this. And they're so far behind. And this is, of course, you know, 10 years before podcasting really became a mainstream thing. So, so let's try to, let's try to strip it down. What is a podcast? I know that it's a, you spend a, a lot of time. It's a deep question, deeper it's, than you think it is. No, no, I, I read the book, so I know how deep it is. Yeah. It's a very deep question. Yeah. So give us the short short version. You know, um, uh, it's funny. I was uh, in an event with Esther Perel last night, who, who hosts Where Should We Begin? And uh, she said that her goal in life is to always make things more complex <laughs> not make them simpler. And and uh, I think that this question is a perfect example of that, where the simple definition is that a podcast is an audio file, generally, those that used to be also video, but that was before YouTube happened. Um, uh, so an audio file that is distributed via what's called an RSS. Um, which means? Real simple syndication, which is a text file, right. which is basically says you will find this material at this location. And it's dynamic, so it's updated on a server like a web page is. And it basically is the infrastructure behind all blogs. It's the infrastructure where you see one website that has a live um, stream of articles from another website. That's usually RSS that's used to share that information and syndicate it. And around 2001, someone got the idea of, hey, we could use this for audio. And uh, they basically hacked up the idea of it. And it still took a couple years after that. But, you know, the interesting thing is I, I because I came up in radio before I became a podcaster and a creator uh, in the audio space, I was always trained in radio to think about audience, 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 audience. How do you build audience? How do you maintain audience? How do you keep them? They are the king, right? And whatever they decide is what things are. And that's guided my whole philosophy of creation, which is very different than many of my contemporaries and colleagues. Ira Glass and I have been friends for 25 years. And we there is much more that we disagree with, like, like fight-level disagreement on, than we agree. And yet we really learn from each other and respect each other quite a bit. His is all about you know, following your instinct and following you know how your taste and how you're trained to kind of tell stories. And mine is always think about if I want to evoke something in someone, how do I how what do I have to do in order to do that? And and that gets applied back to your question of I've seen many different apps featuring audio. I've seen many different, including my former employer Audible, who um, uh, was was doing a lot of short form things that they were desperate for people not to call podcasts. And you know, listeners would look at it and they play with it. And they're like, oh, this is a podcast. They think it's a podcast. They, they, if something comes up on a smart speaker, that might be a podcast or it might not because of the way it's served. And to a listener, they don't care. 
to them that construct of on-demand audio is a podcast. That's the the that's the algorithm that's in their head, and that so that's what it is. And so my perspective is instead of trying to unring a bell and convince someone that it's actually called something else, just let let it be a right. podcast. Intimacy mm-hmm. is really right. important. Right. Speak to that a little bit. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I I when I. The thing about me writing a book about a subject that I talk about every day is my explanations of things evolve. And my explanation on this point has evolved a lot since I wrote the book. Uh, and uh, I, I still think what I wrote the book obviously is true. But the way I choose to describe it now is radio is something that fills spaces. If you are in a bookstore and someone's playing the radio, anyone who's in that room is hearing the radio. If you're in a store, if you're in a car or a kitchen or an office, someone's playing the radio, the people in that space. It's more communal. It's like tiny little communal. If you're in that space, you're part of listening to that, right? It's on, right? Um, People could argue about what they want to have on the car radio, but everyone in the car listens to the same thing, basically. Um, And so radio fills spaces and so therefore can be less than completely intimate. A podcast is a very individual experience. And with a podcast, you can have four people in the store or store all listening with earbuds in listening to podcasts. They can be listening to four different things and nobody knows what you're listening to. It's kind of like the proverbial like brown paper wrap around the books and nobody knows what you're reading. It's it's the same kind of experience, which uh, I think doubles down on intimacy because it's something that physically touches you. It's something that only you are listening to and it just creates a bond between you and that content that I think is very intentional and real in a way that radio is much more passive. And that, like like the original interest I had with podcasting, stripping away geography and time, is a really interesting construct, but yet it, opens up so many other things to have happen that you don't realize when you first get exposed to it. That intimacy has had such a profound effect on podcasting, not just a content wipe, but as an industry of, you know, uh, when you're looking at advertising and podcasting, currently the rates when someone's selling ads in a podcast can be four to 10 X what they are for radio. Like, like it's both audio. Why is one so much the advertising being sold at such a higher level with podcasting than in radio? And I think it's because of the intimacy factor. Right, the impact. That yeah. People are have. paying attention. Right. It's intentional. They're also, because of that intimacy, they want to support that podcast. So if they're thinking about buying some socks, they're going to buy socks from the people who are advertising on their favorite podcast, right? And then content-wise – you know, a great radio DJ speaks to you as if they're speaking only to you. Um, And yet at the same time, including a lot of people in that conversation. Um, And in podcasting, you are also having a conversation with one person, but the, there is a implicit understanding that you are of the same tribe that you, it can literally be like my mom, who listens to quilting podcasts, like two quilting podcasts. And she goes to events with the people. She's gone on a cruise with the people that host that podcast. If they say they like a product, my mother goes and buys it. She's she's on online forums. She's gotten to know people, made friends. You know, there's an article in the Times almost a month ago um, about uh, all these Facebook groups that are popping up for fans of podcasts. And the creators have nothing to do with the 
the group at all. It's just the assumption is that if I like Radiolab and you like Radiolab, we might like each other. So it's like what used to happen with magazines, right? Like, yeah, like yeah, New Yorker, New Yorker right. cruises mm-hmm. and people advert, you know, the, the Lovelorn ads in the New Yorker and that right? sort of exactly. thing. Exactly. No, no, no. Exactly. I think yeah, I never thought of that before, but I think magazines are really interesting analog to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, that leads me to, you know, all of us would love to know from someone like you, what... What are you excited about? Producers of Radiolab uh, at the end of 2019 came up with a um, multi-part series about Dolly Parton mm. called Dolly Parton's America that you would think, why would I want to listen to a biography of Dolly Parton? Um, and I would challenge anyone to listen to the first episode of that series and That'd not want to listen to the whole thing. Wow. It is, It is deep in a way you don't expect at all. It is... Uh, she as a character is really intriguing in a way you weren't prepared for. And, you know, they, they make the premise or they offer the premise in the first episode of, you know, almost everyone in America loves Dolly Parton. Almost everyone. And even draw and, and, and even Jad, the host of Radio Lab, his interest in Dolly Parton happened when his, she got in a car accident. And his father, a Lebanese immigrant to America, treated her after the car accident, oh, really? and they became deep friends. Wow. Jad's father and Dolly Parton. And you first thought this is this quirky thing, if she can make friends with anyone, even the Lebanese doctor <laughs> in the hospital in Nashville. That would be interesting. Um, and you'd think that'd be interesting. But then you, then you, in one of the episodes, they go kind of go deep into what's behind that friendship. Wow. And it is drawing deep parallels between... Uh, kind of the rural poverty of America and the immigrant experience of what he left in Lebanon, and that is their bond. Well, you know, I became more. It's funny you mention that because I watched Ken Burns's, you know, uh, country music mm-hmm. series, right? And it made me start thinking more seriously about Dolly Parton when I saw the little bit oh, about yeah. her as well. Oh yeah, um, Jad's, got, Jad's father said that Dolly Parton's music is immigrant music. And it just it came with, and so it's a fantastic series. I also recommend something I love is um, uh, you mentioned earlier your 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 uh, appreciation of wait wait don't tell me. One of the producers, longtime producers of wait wait don't tell me, his name is Ian Chillog, has created a podcast on his own called Everything Is Alive, and um, in that the basic setup is that Ian interviews inanimate objects and Terrific. a can of soda. A gas lantern, oh, a Sharpie pen. And what he does is he finds really clever improv comedians. And they spend a couple hours kind of sketching out the character of, if you were a can of generic soda, what would your attitude towards the world be? Oh, that's terrific. You know, what, you know, and, and so then they get in the studio and they basically improvise these conversations. And they are and then deeply edited afterwards. And just amazing. It is the most fun, surprising podcast oh, that I've heard in a long time. Gonna, that's, so, I'll look for that. Yeah, that's it's called great. Everything is Alive. It's just a delight. Every single episode is. I've also been finding a trend that's begun. It, it may have been something that started a long time ago, but I'm just noticing it now. And that's the trend, particularly between nonfiction books mm-hmm. that then become podcasts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something it's intriguing about right. that. Yeah. 
you know, there's the one called Family Secrets that mm -hmm. just came out that was done by um, Danny Shapiro, who mm -hmm. wrote Inheritance, about her own secret in her family. Right. So I, I'm interested in that literary podcast connection. There was a book, um, uh, was a book about a woman who was dying from cancer. Her name was Julia. They put out a podcast series called Julia, which was based off recordings with her before she passed away. And it's basically a memoir of her last year. And um, it's not a hilarious get this party started podcast, but it's an example of how in that vein of you're talking about how you can have a podcast that has attributes and unique elements to it that are uh, in line with a book on the same subject, but there's an experience you have with a book that you don't have with a podcast. There's an experience with a podcast you don't have with a book. And so they, they, they're obviously, if it's the same woman, Right, Re um, recorded at the time she was writing the book, right, and 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 dying, um, that you end up with uh, something that when it works real well, it's not just an infomercial for the book; it's something that's kind of discreet and unto itself that works really, really well. Yeah, no, it's it's. Uh, I think they do work well when that happens. Mm -hmm. So, the other thing about your book that I found really interesting is that you chose to sort of do the last chapter by looking backward. Mm -hmm. And that is, you talk about the four piv pivotal moments in the history of podcasting. Right. And I want people to read the book so you don't have to go into that deeply, but mm -hmm. sketch, sketch that out a little bit. Felt from the very beginning of this book that for all the excitement in podcasting, people don't really understand its history. And that things that often confuse or frustrate people about podcasting are based off intentions that happened when it was kind of created and so i felt also you can't really be part of something's future unless you really understand its past to some degree and you can learn from that as well so i at first i was gonna i'm gonna write the history of podcasting and then i realized i was writing a whole second book <laughs> and, and it was just becoming way too much of a monopoly of my time and so i pulled back and said look there's a couple key moments that really matter in this history where if they hadn't happened the way they happened, um, podcasting as we know it would never have, have become what it has today. And uh, to the best of my recollection, I usually always can remember three of them. I can't remember all four, but I'll try. Um, uh, one is the actual the invention of podcasting, which happened uh, with a guy named Dave Weiner and uh, a guy named Adam Curry. Dave Weiner had developed RSS technology and blogging technology. Adam Curry said, hey, it could be used for audio. And they basically spent two days in a hotel room hacking out how to make that happen. Um, there was also the, I, I think I can remember all four. The second one was uh, when a gentleman named Chris Lydon, Christopher Lydon, who had been a longtime radio host, television host, writer for the New York Times, um, uh, had been kind of, uh, had left his radio show and was on a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard um, with Dave Weiner, this, this guy who, had, who said, you know, I created this thing and no one's ever really figured out how to use it well, but you're a radio guy, so why don't you do this thing? And then Christopher very humbly says, you know, I sat down for this first recording and I didn't really understand what was happening. I knew that it was, was a bunch of microphones. I was interviewing somebody and something magically was going to happen to put it on computers, but didn't really understand it. But that was where people really understood what was possible 
with podcasting. I mean, you know, probably measures in the hundreds of number of people who who listened to that first. There's a podcast called Open Source, which is still in production today. Um, but that was the first one where people said, oh, wow, you can really do something that's not amateurish in this space. Uh, the third was Apple's bear hug of podcasting, where Steve Jobs got up before the iPhone was even introduced and said, you know, we people have been hacking iTunes software in order to put these podcasts on their iPods. We're going to build it in. And at that time, he was touting the overwhelming amount of selection in the podcast space where there were 3,000 podcasts available, wow. available on that day. Yeah, which compared to the 900,000 that are available today. Is that what the number is yes, now? Yes, 906,000 as of two weeks ago, last time I checked. And, um, but he was like, it's great. There's all the stuff here. You're interested. You can listen to this stuff. And, um, uh, ended up being, you know, literally a third of 1% of what's available today. And, uh, the fourth moment was arguably during 2014, two events happened within weeks of each other. Um, Serial uh, came out a podcast. Most people recognize and think that that's really what made podcasting what it was which I think is not untrue, but the truth is is that just a matter of weeks before Serial came out, uh, Apple had issued an update for its uh, operating system, which put the podcast app in the download for the operating system. Right. So you didn't have to go and separately download it, which changed it from nine clicks, including an app download, in order to listen to a podcast to two clicks and no app download. And that change is what really made Serial possible. So yes, Serial was a huge, overwhelming outside success, which has never been duplicated since. Um, yet that success wouldn't have been possible if not weeks before, just by dumb luck timing, they had not uh, put it out. Um, in fact, from, from what I've been able to gather, they had originally thought about putting cereal out in the summer. And if they had done that and they delayed it for a while, keep reporting, it, it may have had a rockier start right. than it did. Well, not, not only are you a great podcast, but you got a great memory of what you wrote as well. I so just, thank I you. Took an app this afternoon. I think that's the only thing I can <laughs> Thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> and, and you know, the book is the book I found fascinating and it, it I'd like to hear it from you. I think I understand it when I mentioned what you'd written earlier about, in my mind, creators serve audiences and I serve creators. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the um, the animating factor of why you wrote this to a large mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. I The most fun I've had on... Uh, in promoting this book has been talking to groups or going to bookstores in front of very eager groups of um, either new podcasters. Most people who show up are new podcasters or interested in podcasting and recognize things that I've worked on as being things that they admire and they want to hear from the person who did that thing. And um, I find it really exciting for me because the thing that breaks my heart is when passion and enthusiasm uh, are, are, are channeled in pursuit of wrong expectations. And that you see people who are so excited to do something and they get twisted up either, you know, it, it isn't having an impact they want or isn't reaching the well, people. Well, you talk about or, how many people abandon. Yeah, 40% of podcasts are, are abandoned. abandoned. Yeah, within right. a year. 
So there's a, a huge amount of practical advice in here as well, mm-hmm. even from you know from people like Terry Gross, and you right. mm-hmm. you you pull from a lot of different people. Yeah. Even even you have chapters about you know how to ask great questions, mm-hmm. what to keep in your back pocket in right. case you just don't have it. But um, the other last thing I wanted to ask you because it's really very very uh, funny is how you came up with the title for the book Make Noise. Yeah. Yeah. So one of my favorite things I ever created was a a trivia show that happens every week in in New York at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's called Ask Me Another. Um, When we did it, we wanted to create a a live program that featured around trivia not and it was it was you know at the time we were working on wait we don't tell me like there's there's space for something else uh, a live event which is not focused on the news is not recorded in front of a large group of people it's recorded in front of a small group of people um um there was a show for many years on public radio called uh, uh michael feldman's uh show um uh what do you know? I think it was called, and which was also recorded in front of a small group, and there were elements of that that I really loved and thought really weren't worked out well, and and so I like let's make this show, and so basically we scrounged up enough resources to do like ten episodes and see if it would work, and we realized we needed a a applause sign for people so that they could uh, know when they were supposed to clap. This is a new show. They didn't know when they were supposed to do their thing, right? And uh, you know, kind of borrowing from TV shows who have those those signs, and the signs were like uh, like six hundred dollars a piece. And I'm like, there's no way that we can this budget that we can afford a sign. So I'm like, I went to the shop at NPR, and I'm like, is there anything here that lights up that we can use as an applause sign? And, and eventually, they showed me a square sign. They said we can use these. They were used for something else, and uh, we can scrape the letters off and put new letters on. But the problem with the square sign is if you put the word applause on, it would be so, so tiny no one would ever see it. It was from Tavis Smiley's show. Yeah, Tavis right? Smiley's show, yes, exactly. Uh, it used to say, hey, Tavis, on it. <laughs> right. Because he would, when he was in the studio, he would introduce a, an interview he had done earlier and had right. been edited. And then he would get busy doing something else like getting ready for his next segment or reading his material for his next interview or whatever. And he'd forget that he had to jump back in and read. So they had these lights to turn on to flash. Hey, it's time for you to, to focus on what you're about to read. And um, so they had these lights. Guys like, you can use these, but you should come up with something that looks better on a square sign. And so I said, I just blurted out, put make noise on it. So they did. They put make noise on both sides of these signs, which is the interesting thing. Of so we use them, and they still use them. Uh, the same two signs uh, every week when they do the uh, the recordings. The um, uh, but what always imp- what always kind of had meaning to me was there was a side that faced the stage that said make noise too, and I was always said you know you should you should think about that because that's there to inspire you too. Just go out there and just roar. Just make make the most noise you can and have the best time you can and just make something that other people are going to be thrilled when they hear it. And so that was, I was still using it to this day. Eric, I could talk to you forever. It's really been wonderful having you on The Literary Thank Life. Thank you for this book and thanks for being with me. All right, tonight. absolutely. Absolutely.